G'day humans. Today on the show, we dig deep into one of the most perplexing political scandals that I think I've ever seen in Australian politics. Perplexing because the person at the heart of the scandal has motives that to me appear completely inscrutable. It is a scandal that has divided people along political lines and has captivated the attention of Australia much longer than I would have expected it to. It involves the former Prime Minister, who's not all that former, we're only a hundred and a few days into the new administration of his successor, and his behaviour during the pandemic, in particular, his habit, secretive habit, if you will, of accumulating other ministries to himself. So if you're in the United States, you know, in a parliamentary democracy, we have ministers who have particular portfolios, and those portfolios might be the treasury or finance or natural resources or education or something like that. They're like cabinet. I mean, they are cabinet ministers, but they're, you know, in America, they're, they're appointed outside of Congress by the executive uh, themselves, by the president. Uh, in a parliamentary democracy, those people are also parliamentarians. So they come from Congress and they also form uh, the the cabinet and they make the big decisions about things. Well, in this case, the prime minister throughout the course of the pandemic and and I guess over the course of more than 12 months decided to secretly decree that he himself was a co-cabinet minister, a co-secretary in the American parlance, secretary of the treasury, secretary of the environment, all this sort of stuff. It's almost like a president just deciding that not only are they president, but they also want to be Secretary of State, and they also want to be Secretary of the Interior, and they're not going to tell anyone about it. But why would you do that? And why would you not exercise that power except for in one case? This weird situation has been captivating Australian political insiders for the past month, so I wanted to get the ultimate Australian political insider on the show to break it down for you and to tell me what he thinks it means for Australian democracy and for democracy around the world. Uh, Peter also has some interesting, we're talking about Peter Van Onselen, uh, also has some really interesting insights about the differences between Australian and American democracy and the threats that each of them face. So this is well worth a listen, even if you're uh, you're not obsessed by the minutiae of Australian democracy. But trust me, you will be by the time you hear Peter explain it. Peter is a a political academic. He teaches, uh, teaches politics at a university level, but he's best known as a broadcaster and a writer. He's essentially the chief political correspondent for Network 10, which is a television channel. I won't go through all of the, all of his litany of other appearances, but basically you can see him a lot on the project. You can see him on 10 News and you can hear him being interviewed as a political scientist and general uh, political authority. He's written a, a bunch of books. You'll hear about his upcoming book as well. But without further ado, please enjoy the one and only Peter Van Onselen. Breakfast. You haven't had breakfast. I haven't had yet. breakfast. This is this Too is early. My, this is my breakfast. This is so breakfast. Good I think they you. call it a piccolo, but I forgot to ask for it skinny. So. It's too small. Well, yeah, but I, I, if I have too much milk, then I feel like I'm not having enough coffee with my milk. Well, that's why you have to get it extra strong, which is what you did. Which is what I did. Yeah, extra strong, lots of milk. I don't understand a piccolo. It's gone before you even know you've got it. <laughs> you know what? Like, in, in a sense, this is a byproduct of my coffee pod machine at home, I think. Right. Where, where I can just keep ordering more 
Yeah, and it makes no difference because I, I just yeah. have, I just have short blacks. Right, right. But the difference is, is I have. But also, you're an environmental vandal for using the pods. You should just what get it, an espresso machine. The pods are create create too much waste. I could just lie and tell you that I have one of those special pod dispensers. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> there are ones, aren't there, that there refill are, the, there that are, refill I'm... your refillable pod with it... create new pods. Um, just get an espresso machine; they're great, like an actual old fashioned one. I used well, to... you can get a, yeah. I mean, if you want to spend fifteen thousand dollars, you can get a really good one, but you can also just get one for a few hundred bucks from. Are you, we we had one of them a long yeah. time ago. One of the ones that was really expensive that crushed the beans and then yeah, right, did it yeah, uh, and then for whatever reason, so much better than the, your pods. Yeah, but having said that, we now get all, there's all press have put out pods. And, okay. and their, I mean, obviously, it doesn't change the environmental implications, no. but that doesn't matter, right? Because we have <laughs> you, the, the special coffee en- pod dispensing. Right, yeah, of course. Um, and you but- <laughs> also enjoy yourself while the world is burning. Yeah, and more. It's, that's true. <laughs> With but, the fragrant Arabica but it's scent. A, but it's a good the aroma. Uh, now the pods are drinkable, is my point. Right. So okay. the, the all press pods, given that all press I just, is- I've just never, never quite understood what the selling proposition is. I mean, it's slightly easier than scooping some coffee in it is a lot and putting it into your thing. But it's a lot more expensive. It doesn't it taste as good. And it's still a little bit fiddly and messy when the pod's dribbling a little bit of... Oh, well, or, or no, when you I, empty I the canister or the... That, I, I, t- I take issue with that. Like really? It, like that side of it's easy. But, yeah, I don't... Look, I guess it's just a case of we bought it. Yeah. Uh, and so now yeah. we're just using it. All right. Environmental <laughs> vandalism 101. This is how no, it's no, justified. No, no, you see, we, we, we have the pod dispensable. Where the rubber meets the road of environmental vandalism with <laughs> Peter Van Onselen. Uh So we were going to record yesterday and you were just telling me that uh, Triumph at the debating championships... Uh, for your daughter, which mm. is so congratulations are in order. And I was, uh, you were saying that you were a debater, no surprises when you were <laughs> younger. Uh, and when I was uh, at uni, I was a member of the debating team at UTS where I was doing journalism and media. And uh, at Sydney at the same time, at Sydney Uni, about a half generation above me were all the chaser guys. And oh, they yeah. were the debating heroes at the time. That was, my, the... That was my generation. Yeah, so I, right. I debated against uh, Charles Firth, right. Craig Rewcastle, right. Julian Morrow, all those guys. Yeah. So when I was in, I think, first year, and they must have been in their 17th year of their law degrees or whatever <laughs> they were doing, we all went to the Australasian Debating Championships in Manila in the Philippines and you know what? Yeah, you know, that, that's exactly where I went. But the years are going to differ. I, right. I, went, I went to the Australasians in Manila in '97. Wow! And then went to Worlds again. No, wait, that was it. That was it. That was my first year in '97. Absolutely, I must have been there. We must have so been we're there together. The same Australasian. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, yeah. So I, what, what? What uni were you at? Uh, I was at UNSW. Right. Uh, okay. And we. We made the semi-finals, and I've never got past the semi-finals, which is why my daughter winning her semi-final last night, I told her she's broke the Van Onselen curse. I made the semi-finals <laughs> at the the, the the Australian Championships, which are the, the right, novice IVs. Right, yeah. I made it three times at the Australasians wow. and twice at the Worlds and never got past the bloody semi-finals. There you go. Um, but that was, yeah, that was the first Fantastic. semi-final I made. I was there with Pip Webb and Ros Dixon. Amazing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we were just little rookies who were just clinging on. So we were in barnacles. first year, were you? Yeah, we were uh, barnacles clinging onto the onto the hull. Well, you must have been the same year as Pip and Roz. They were first years. I was older, uh, but they were both much better school debaters than I ever were. I think they right. were both in the, the world championship winning Australian schools team. Mm-hmm. So this was their first university tournament. I was the sort of grisly veteran of uni debating. They were better debaters but younger would be the way right. to put it. So so they sort of turned up naively, yeah. gave speeches of substance rather than style. Right. Uh, and then I would get up at the at the third spot and sort of deliver a speech that they both looked completely perplexed by. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but because it was uni debating, they they were new to it, so 
they, they were sort of begrudgingly accepting over time that the adjudicators weren't entirely dismissive the way they were of what I had to say. Yeah, I, I still remember that Dom Knight, who was one of the yep. uh, you know the, the Chaser boys, and if you're not, not if you're not listening in Australia, they're a, a popular uh, comedy troupe, I suppose, a sketch comedy troupe, uh, satirical comedians. Dom uh, failed me. Uh, in one of my debates, failed. At, failed. At, I didn't even like, think that was I mean, possible. he because he was adjudicating. Yeah, right. But he better fail. Like, a- well, whatever. I mean, we didn't win. Oh, okay. Well, I guess by definition that's a failure. Yeah. Well, you know the, the you know the irony. You know, as you say, for people who who don't know the Chaser overseas, they they they've been a, a long term very good satirical comedy group. They weren't the funny debaters at uni. At uni, they were really serious. There weren't jokes involved in their speeches. They were very good debaters. Uh, I think Julia Morrow might have won Australasians, uh, but they were all of them very good debaters, but completely serious. No gags huh. in their speeches, which is why when they started, I think originally as a newspaper before they ended up on television yes. and all the rest of it, I am happy to admit as one of my, my, my early powers of prediction, which are so bad, I didn't think there was any chance they were going to be good at this. Because I, I, I remember- <laughs> At the comedy malarkey. Exactly. Because right. we all thought, well, hang on a second, they've never been funny. Mm. And then all of a sudden they were, and I had yeah. to swallow my words, but they weren't, they, weren't, right. they, they weren't debaters in the way that you might have expected. They were very serious. But yeah. I, look, I, was, I, I remember two things about that, that, that tournament. I remember, being, I remember losing unjustly uh, when Dom Knight- I don't even remember what we were debating. And then I remember winning completely unjustly as well because <laughs> the, it was one of those cases where the, the adjudicator just agrees with the proposition that you happen to have been allotted. Oh yeah, and you know, so it was any any debater <laughs> worth their salt remembers the shaftings where they deserve to win. Yeah, but forgets the moment that they get told they won. That's true. That they didn't deserve yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, so the, oh, I still remember the proposition was that Japan should not have an offensive army. Right, right. now I went in on the. Uh, I guess I must have been arguing that Japan should not have an offensive army, but I didn't. Well, hopefully, even... or else I can already tell you why you didn't win. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I didn't even know that they didn't. <laughs> okay, yeah, like I, well, I was so I was so young and naive. I just thought that Japan, like all other countries, has an army, and so of course they have. Like I didn't realize that. It's Did in your their teammates constitution. explain it to you? Yeah, it sort of became apparent throughout the process of the debate. Uh, I, I, had a, I had a similarly embarrassing <laughs> moment. We had a debate. I can't remember what the exact topic was, but it was about the Tamil Tigers. Uh, and I didn't know what the Tamil Tigers were. But fortunately, first-year university students, Pip and Roz, did. Uh, you know, this fourth-year student you at the time had no idea. Of, a type of Sri Lankan tiger, literally. <laughs> and, and I was third speaker, right? So I was able to watch the whole debate, learn a lot, mm. uh, and then riff off the back of that. That's the good thing with being a third speaker. You don't need to know anything. As long as you've got a bit of style <laughs> right. and some comedic flair, you'll, you'll win it. Uh, should we talk about the former Prime Minister, which is why I wanted to pick your brain uh, mainly? Uh, what did he do? Oh, well, basically... It's got everyone up in arms. He secretly took over multiple ministerial portfolios. And I should say, when I say take over, uh, he co-opted. So he didn't boot the ministers out, but he became... Nor the- did he make any decisions or anything. No, apart that's from true. One. Apart from one. But he co-opted the roles and he became a bit like a, a sort of a collector. He was addicted, I got the impression. Uh, I'm not, not a 
clinician, I should be clear, but I, I got the impression that he became addicted to taking <laughs> these Dr. Van over. Dr. give me your professional opinion about well, the psychology and the psychiatric condition I, of I am a doctor, but of political science, yeah, so I have no training count. in this field. No. Although I have occasionally tried to pretend that I was a doctor and let it be unsaid yeah. uh, for the benefits that oh, flow. God, don't but get anyway, me started on let's that. Not get Whenever that. I try to stop people from doing that, I get hounded <laughs> on social media as being dismissive of PhDs. Like, because everyone goes, where are the actual doctors? The doctor <laughs> physicians aren't real doctors. We're the doctors. And so, because sometimes I object to people presenting themselves as doctors. If you're talking about something where there could be any ambiguity. Which happened a lot during the pandemic. Happened a lot during the pandemic. You know, here's Dr. So-and-so to tell you something about vaccines. Yeah, they're a doctor of English. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. Stop calling them doctor in well, that context. I, I have rarely used the nomenclature simply because... In journalism, I'm bringing his fancy words, <laughs> nomenclature. Right. Only a doctor would say nomenclature. Yeah, that was in my PhD. That yeah, word, but anyway, right. I, look, I, I rarely use the title because uh, you know, it is seen as, as a mm. little bit unnecessary. Mm. But, yeah. but go if you're on to- a plane and someone has a heart attack, is there a doctor on the well, plane? Yes. Well, na- Peter Van Onselen. Now we're getting I'm sidetracked. Bringing your political science doctorate. Now we're getting sidetracked, but I do have to tell you this because it is a hundred percent true and a hundred percent embarrassing. I was on a plane once. Where I was getting, um, I was in business class, which I'm not usually, but I was getting. You don't have mag- to apologise for your white privilege. I was getting <laughs> more mag- white people. I, w- in business I, w- class. I was getting magical service, and it was and I, whoever booked it, it must have been a corporate thing that they put me as doctor. So it was right. Dr. Van Onselen this, Dr. Van Onselen that, <laughs> and I and I started to realise that I think I was getting this service because I thought I was a medical doctor. Anyway, something happened on the flight. It wasn't life threatening, thankfully, but the stewardess came to me and genuinely said, no. "Can you help?" There's an incident at the back of the plane. Somebody's got some issues. And I literally had to explain that I'm not a real doctor. Yeah. (laughs) I have a PhD. And this is where it gets really bad, is next to me, there was a lady sitting next to me, not a word of a lie, and she said to the stewardess, look, I'm now in a different field, but I am actually a trained nurse, if you would like me to, you know, go back and, and have a look. And she then went and helped, which I was unable to do. Um, I was sort of yelling down the corridor as she left that my mum was a nurse. If that, yeah. like, <laughs> I once dated a nurse. <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of added to the desperation. Right. And the service plummeted after that yeah, for the I'll rest bet. of the flight, as I'll I'm bet. sure you can imagine. Yeah, they but just threw a sandwich at you What are the odds said, of that, by the way? Enjoy your fucking PhD. What are the odds wanker. of that? Well, <laughs> it's just... Depends how often you go by a doctor. But, uh, yeah, okay. So Getting Scott- back to Scott Morrison. Morrison. So, and when is this taking place? So, this started at the very beginning of the pandemic. So, I think it, the first time he did it was in March. And it was a reasonable thing- Of 2020. To, of 2020. And it was a reasonable thing for him to do it then, arguably, because- Height of the pandemic, at the beginning of it, people don't know what's happening. The health minister that he became? He he co-opted the health portfolio and he told the health minister, Greg Hunt's his name, that he was going to co-opt this role because emergency powers in Australia for the health minister, when they get utilised, they probably never should have been legislated. They're very strong. And there was a genuine argument that it wasn't a good idea for one person as the health minister to have all these powers. And equally, what would happen if he got COVID and... You know, you wanted to have somebody that could therefore take the powers over and seamlessly. And were those powers pre-existing? They were pre-existing, but they were pre-existing, but not in not brought into effect. So they needed to be brought into operation right. if a pandemic or some such struck. A- and there was some kind of emergency decree in March exactly. of 2020, there which was. activated those latent health powers. Exactly. Okay. And having done that, uh, he also he sought advice from his then Attorney General, uh, who said that this was entirely legal for him to to become the co-health minister. Now. 
I'm led to believe that it was sort of an oversight that they didn't then just make an announcement, which I don't know that I entirely believe that, but it's possible. The reason it's possible is because the announcements were coming thick and fast. There were live press conferences. It would have been like this for world leaders right around the the globe. So I I, I will accept that proposition. Okay. So that one is possibly okay. And just to clarify, when you say that he was worried about what might happen if the health minister got COVID... That also doesn't really pass muster because there's a mm. way for. I mean, if, if you could, you if could a sign minister, someone else in, in well, two exactly, seconds. you would get yeah. an assistant health minister to become the health minister, wouldn't you? I, I agree. So on its that's own, that's the way that it normally. I mean, that's the way that it has always functioned throughout the history of this particular democracy, and that's why it's not acceptable for all the ones that are to follow. But I, I, I give that more as an addendum. The okay. primary reason that you can justify the one only for health was that he told the health minister he got the advice that it was legal from the attorney general. And there were these emergency powers that you right. could argue. Right. I, I don't agree, by the way, but you could argue that, therefore, it's okay to have two. But right. you still should tell the public, which they didn't do. Yes, and the portfolio itself is obviously keenly relevant. I mean, it's exactly. the health portfolio. And this is where it gets weird, because that one you could sort of – if that was the only time he did it and it came out years later and they argued that it was an oversight that somehow it wasn't made public, you could potentially – Accept that. And that's the one that came out and became public because Scott Morrison, as I understand it, told the authors of a book that he did this because he thought it was a humble brag, if you like, that this was a, a smart thing for him to do in the way in the early stages of the this pandemic. This is what a statesman would do. Yeah. So take ownership and control. <laughs> take charge in a go get em way. And that's the way it was written up in this book because I've read the book itself to see how they'd referred to it. But this is where it gets weird. So a week or so later, he decided he would also do it for the finance portfolio and then had his own reasons in his mind. Why? Because, you know, he wanted to have co-equal powers to be able to make sudden decisions around finance, for example. But he didn't tell the finance minister, which was Matthias Cormann back then. He's now the head of the OECD. He didn't tell him. He didn't tell his attorney general that he was doing this, uh, whom was in on it when it came to the health minister. And then suddenly fast forward another year or so, a little bit more than a year, and so in early 2021, I believe it was April, he took over the resources portfolio, which also gave him carriage of science, industry uh, and energy because it was all in the one department with and resources. Just pause for a moment. When you say he took over, what does that actually m- he, he, mean? He took the, he co-opted the ministry. So in other but words- can I as prime minister just decree that for myself? No, you, the governor general has to sign off on it. So the governor general in Australia, if any Americans are listening, is basically, I mean, a statutory uh, figurehead who occupies the role of the Queen of England in mm-hmm. our country and is essentially a president with no powers, like you might have in some parliamentary democracies. There's a president who basically just does what cabinet tells them to do, but is a is the functionary who stamps forms and signs off on things. So the prime minister tells the governor general yep. to swear him in. In, this, in these additional ministries. And he did that with the health ministry in 2020, in he, March He did as that well. with the health the, ministry and the governor with the general finance was fine portfolio. With it. The governor general signed off on both Technically, of those. Buckingham Palace could have overruled it or could have intervened. That well, would have been inappropriate, but that's the way the, the rules and work. There's, and there's some criticism, that the including by me, that the governor general should have at least insisted that the prime minister make this public. The governor yes. general's pushed back at that and argued that that's not his role. His role is to just simply do what the prime minister tells him to do. I, I think there's room in the constitution for somewhere between the two. In mm. other words- I mean, it clearly clearly it's not only to do anything that the prime minister exactly. doesn't do, right? That's the whole point of having him there is as a, is a, has a fundamental check on it, defending the constitution against the, the prime minister. Exactly right. And I, you know, that's why I would argue that he was obliged- 
to at least ask questions, which we don't know if he even did because they're not talking about it. And that's what this inquiry that the new prime minister has set up will look into. But let me okay. Let, so let, just yeah. So the governor general literally comes over to the the what the prime well, minister's they, office. They, they, or, did, they well, did it all by they, they did it all by, by letter. So there was oh, no there, you know, oh. there, was, there was no sort of there was no knighting with a sword or. <laughs> Or, or, well, or I guess anything it, we're like all that. in isolation throughout the <laughs> early ones, right? I mean, in March, I guess, in 2020, they, they can't meet face-to-face, presumably, anyway. Right? Yeah, my understanding is that none of them were face-to-face. It was all by correspondence, okay. which, which okay. you can do. Right. Uh, but, of course, the, the irony of this, Josh, is that this highlights why it didn't need to be done. The speed with which Scott Morrison was able to co-opt these ministries... His argument is that he needed to do it because what if something suddenly happened and somebody needed to take over the various ministries if something happened to the minister? Well, your secret moves to take them over in case that happened so swiftly proves that you didn't need somebody in the role to begin with. Right. Because you can do exactly what you did secretly so swiftly, not so secretly, if something were to go wrong. Yeah, and even if it took... 36 hours for the well, letters to go... wouldn't even take that long. 15 no, minutes, I think. Right, yeah, to be... Uh, they're probably faxed. I was going to say they're probably scanned, <laughs> but they're probably faxed, aren't they, in, in government? Uh, then, yes, and in the meantime, you would have an assistant minister... Exactly, who can already if do you that. needed to. And you, or you could even use... And there hasn't been much talk about this. You could actually use another minister in, if it's in the same department. So, for example, the one that he took over in April of 21, which we're about to talk about, the resource portfolio, you the, the, the industry minister... Uh, or the science minister, or the energy minister, which I think is actually one portfolio, they can all do the role of the resource minister right. if the resource minister is down and out because it's the one department right. that has ambit for all of it. But at any rate, he takes over the resources portfolio, uh, or co-ops it, and he did actually act in this one. Nothing to do with the pandemic, but he didn't like a decision that Keith Pitt, the resource minister, was planning to make. And ministers have powers away from cabinet some powers, to be able to make particular decisions to do with their portfolio, uh, whether they do or don't grant approval for a licence or something of that ilk. And he didn't like what the resource minister was planning to grant as an offshore project, so he co-opted the portfolio in secret without telling the resource minister, and then he just went the other way with the portfolio decision. Now, the, the thing that's fascinating about that is Keith Pitt did then find that out eventually because he had to find out that this thing had been uh, rejected by another resource minister who he didn't know. <laughs> who didn't know existed. Who he didn't know existed. So the Prime Minister let him know. Keith Pitt, who's not actually in the same party as Scott Morrison, he's a national in coalition with the Liberals, and Scott Morrison is a Liberal. Keith Pitt was outraged by this, complained to his leader, the National Party leader, who is the Deputy Prime Minister, but they sort of said, oh, look, there's an election on the horizon. Scott Morrison, you know, he, he likes to be in control of things. Don't worry about it. And that was that. And so mm. it sort of came and well, went. Well, more than just that. I mean, the Deputy Prime Minister has subsequently said since losing power that, that he knew that if he actually took this to the Prime Minister, then the Prime Minister would have deprived him, would have stripped away one of his ministries. Potentially. That, that the Prime Minister had given him, I think one, had given the National Party, the junior coalition partner, one more portfolio than is normal. Yep. And uh, that he has absolutely no doubt about the way that politics is played and that the Prime Minister would have said, if you're going to ask these fucking difficult questions, then go on. Go away. Have, yeah, go away. I'll take one of the ministries back. Thanks. And, he, and he had his own issues, Michael McCormick. He was sort of clinging on to the leadership. He ended up losing it before the election in an internal challenge by an alternative leader, Barnaby Joyce. And uh, sorry, it was Barnaby who was making those points, not McCormack. Yes. Who was, the, who was saying that that's this the way what that would have happened. Would, yeah, that yeah. the Prime Minister would have responded. But okay. at any rate, so it's still not over, right? There's still more to come. So he does this, he acts in that resources portfolio. Then fast forward another month, and in April, in the countdown to the delivery of the budget, uh, he then decides, you know what, I'm going to take over Home Affairs 
and I'm also going to co-opt the treasury portfolio, which again, for overseas listeners, is slightly different to finance. We essentially have two people that control the finances, the finance minister and the treasurer. The treasurer is the more senior of the two. And his treasurer was also his deputy liberal leader uh, in government as well. One of his closest colleagues in theory uh, to the prime minister. So, In May, all of a sudden, he takes over both of those portfolios. There was a new person in Home Affairs a couple of months before Karen Andrews, and the argument is that he wouldn't have done it to the previous Home Affairs minister, who was Peter Dutton, the now leader in opposition. But he takes over the equal control of that Wouldn't have done it to Dutton because Dutton was a leadership rival, a potential threat? The theory is that if Dutton had found out, not that he was telling people because it was secret in both those cases, the theory is that he just yeah wouldn't have wanted to do it to Peter Dutton because that would have... If it had somehow come out, it, it could would have, have sowed so a- much ill will that there would have been a. Oh yeah, it would have split the party in two. De- definitely. So that was too big a risk. Now we're inside the mind of Scott Morrison now, mm. so anything's possible. But that's that's what the speculation in Canberra is. So, and that's the end of the line. That's the last one he did was was the Treasury off the back of also doing Home Affairs. So he co-opted all these portfolios, which technically he still held all the way to election day when he lost the 21 May election of this year. Uh, And he was the co-minister for them all. And you probably already know this, but some of your listeners might not. He, there was a little asterisk at the bottom of the ministerial uh, sheet. Whenever they have a new ministry that would be put out, it has all the names of who's got what portfolio all the way through. And there's sort of 45 ministers all up if you include all the assistant ministers. That's the allotment. There was a little asterisk that started appearing not coincidentally, as it turns out now over the last couple of years, that says some ministers on this list may hold other portfolios uh, that have not been listed on the list. Right. Now- For example, the prime one. For example, the prime minister holding health, (laughs) home affairs, finance, treasury, resources. The minister who goes by the nomenclature prime may also hold some (laughs) other portfolios. uh, Isn't that fascinating? Incredible. Nobody saw it. One weird thing about, before we get to the the ins and outs of the the ethics of all this and whether it means what it means for democracy, the weird thing about the treasury in particular is, so the treasurer in Australia is sort of like the vice president. I mean, is it like the Mm. treasurer? is the second most important person really in the government like the deputy prime minister technically is the deputy but the treasurer is really the the next prime minister in waiting informally and many prime ministers come up through being the treasurer at the time when scott morrison took over this or co-opted the treasury portfolio there was a delta outbreak in australia Mm -hmm. and uh our previous attempts to keep the pandemic out in New South Wales, which had been fairly successful between about May of 2020 and I guess April of April or May of 2021, uh, collapsed completely, and New South Wales went into a, a long and harsh lockdown uh, over the, the southern winter of 2021, mm. uh, trying to keep Delta numbers down. And during that period, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in order to avoid the inability to travel to Canberra, the capital, and, and work and so on, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, moved in with the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, into his personal residence so that the two of them could literally live together in the same house. They were making chicken curries together. <laughs> they were making bacon and eggs for breakfast. And they were literally doing the work of the state uh, from the same, uh, you know, isol- isolated uh, prime ministerial home. And it was while they were living together that the prime minister co-opted the treasurer's portfolio without telling the treasurer. 
I, I, who I was sleeping in the next room. That sounds right. I mean, I know that all of that is true, that they spent a number of weeks living together uh, during that period in the lodge in Canberra, the Prime Minister's official residence, and they were doing social media posts about what they were doing together in terms of some of the cooking and the cleaning and doing media interviews, if you can believe it. So all of this was happening, that is true. I, I wasn't entirely sure that it overlapped with the exact timing of this, okay. of this, I, I, of this I'm, early I'm May open to takeover. being corrected on well, that. But I'm, but not, I'm not correcting you because you, you may well be right. I haven't checked that specifically. Right. But it would make sense because I believe it was in the countdown to budget that they were living together and, of course, it was in the countdown to that budget in May that the timing was that Scott Morrison took over that portfolio. Right. And even if it was a week or two out, you would imagine that at some stage, yeah. while you're having a whiskey with each other watching the footy, you might say, oh, mate, um, by the way. By the way, I'm now also the truth. <laughs> <laughs> just want to, just a little heads up. I've been uh, accumulating. Uh, I've got a new hobby. Uh, you know, some people collect stamps. I am collecting uh, additional portfolios. Well, I, I collected toy soldiers as a exactly, kid, so I, I can understand, understand that the prime minister understand. got addicted to this. Now, what I don't understand, and what I really want to pick your brains about, is and where we may disagree, is I don't quite understand why it all matters, and I don't quite understand why it has transfixed the Australian public for weeks. When I heard first heard about this, I thought. Oh, this is one of those interesting, wonky, inside-the-beltway kind of political journalist stories that mm. will last for about 36 hours and then everyone will move on. And day after day after day, it kept being the lead item in the news. You know, new news kept breaking and the, and the former Prime Minister did himself no favours by not being upfront about it all. He went on Ben Fordham's show on 2GB and Ben asked him directly when I think we only knew about a, a, hand, a couple of portfolios, mm. did you swear yourself in as anything else? And the Prime Minister said... Not to my recollection, which is a bit dodgy, you know. I mean, <laughs> to say the mean, least. You mean not to your recollection? And he hadn't divulged the treasure, like the treasury, or yet. home affairs, at or that home point. affairs. Yeah. That's right. So two portfolios he previously held. Look, I love Ben, and Ben Fordham's a mate of mine. But at that point, that's a real missed opportunity to go. What do you mean, not to your recollection? I mean, did mm. you or didn't you? And then just keep drilling down on that until until you know Morrison has to answer one way or another, or look like a complete idiot. Anyway, um, th- so I thought I just thought this was going to go away because I thought. What do we know about Scott Morrison? We know that he's obsessed with marketing. He's a marketing guy. His background is in marketing and advertising. So he has an he has a an impression of being a bit slick and a bit too smart for his own boots. Mm. He's quite controlling. We've always known that. Uh, he doesn't like uh, you know delegating duties to other people. And he's very much a buck stops with me kind of nice like guy, you know, the the affable uncle who's going to make sure that everything's okay and is going to take credit for everything and might be a little bit bumbling in the way that he does it, but it'll all come out good in the end as far as he's concerned because he's got your back. And all of those things are perfectly consistent with him doing something which admittedly is quite bizarre and hard for me to understand why he would do it, but in the absence of a motive that makes any sense. <laughs> I don't understand why everyone thinks... Like, a lot of the response has been, this was an attack on the democratic institutions of the state of Australia. This is a shattering of the soft guardrails of democracy. And much like Erdogan or, you know, Orban or <laughs> Donald Trump or something, you know, this is, the, this is the leeching into our democratic body politic of the undemocratic... And I'm like... What are you talking about? This well, is a frivolous guy who did a frivolous, silly thing. Okay, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So, I, I first up, I don't think that Scott Morrison was trying to unwind Australian democracy. I choose to believe that he wasn't that delusional. 
I choose to believe that his decision to do this secretly over all the time that he did was sort of, if you like, a personification of his arrogance and his control freakish nature. You know, he, he's a control freak. Uh, he thinks that the solution to every problem is more of Scott Morrison. And so, therefore, the more portfolio Scott Morrison held, the better. And he just became, you know, non-clinically addicted to this would be the way that I would put it. Okay. So, I choose not to believe that he was so delusional that he was trying to under, undermine or undercut Australian democracy over time. However... I do think that there are profound implications for Australian democracy in this, which I want to get to. But I should make this point. I'm not sure that it transfixed the nation for the period of time that it it did the media. So people like me who report on daily politics, uh, particularly in Canberra in the press gallery, uh, had had real outrage around this and, and, and made it the central focus for a long time, exactly as you say. I'm not sure that the public did. I think there was a bit of a move-on attitude for a lot of people, but bad luck, guess what? We're still running it in well, the news. Well, not, not to use radio as my trump card, but I'll use radio as my <laughs> trump card, which is that, we, you know, given that I talk to people live for, for three mm. hours every day, I can assure you any time it came up and any time I would articulate anything remotely like what I just said, the text line would explode with people saying, with listeners, and this okay. may be, you know, that's a self-selecting group as well because it's the because it's ABC listeners, but a lot of the people who I speak to around the state in regions Regional ABC stations, which will, which my show also goes out to, echoed that as well. Echoed that as, okay. as well. You know, so if you know, if, if someone in Orange or Tamworth is is texting saying, "How can you not think that this is a threat to democracy?" Then well, I think it's more. Well, I'm glad if that's the case because that that was my view that this was something that should be transfixing the nation, which for the reasons I'm about to go into. But I, I was just unsure whether it mm, was, which actually right. left me wondering whether the new prime minister politically speaking, needed to be more cautious in how strongly he was prosecuting this. Yeah, and we if, can talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah but, but if you're right, then I'm glad by that because I, I'm glad that in our democracy, you know, your, your average punter, if you like, uh, was concerned about what this meant. So with the caveat that I think Scott Morrison's motives were not delusional to undercut democracy, the thing that shocked me about this, and maybe I should have known the answer to this as a political scientist, uh, not a real doctor, uh, I, you know, putting my academic cap on, I am just surprised to find out that he was able to do this legally without there being some sort of outing of it, without a public statement being required in the Gazette, for example. Uh, That shocked me to find out that this was even legal. It shocked me at an even more primitive level that you can have multiple people in the same portfolio without a clear... uh, Conflict. Yeah, well, without a clear authority. Like, who... It doesn't make any sense to me that the Constitution would provide for for people having multiple... Not for people having multiple portfolios, but for the same portfolio being handled by multiple ministers. Well, that that surprised me as well. So, for example, in, in, in the portfolios, not all ministers have this, but a lot of ministerial portfolios, as we've talked about, have the power for a minister not through cabinet, but as the individual minister to make decisions, right? Uh, in when you have two ministers that hold that portfolio, it actually becomes a rush to who makes the decision first, right? Uh, which which is absurd in a public policy sense. Mm. So that surprised me to learn that. Although surely, just socially and culturally, you would assume that the person with the higher ranking in the other portfolio would be the one to get their way, which they did in the case of Scott Morrison making that resources decision, in the sense that the minister can go off and make their decision all they want, and then the prime minister the next day can deprive them of the ministry. True, or, but, know, but then the prime minister can say. be. But then this is the nature of uh, Westminster democracy, isn't it? The minister, the prime minister, can then lose his or her job instantly as well from a vote True. from the party room. True. So yeah. there's all those checks and balances, yeah. and that brings me to my real issue with this: is yes, it's a bit of an inside the beltway, or I thought it was a bit of an inside the beltway issue to some extent. But I'm glad if it's transfixed. Look, people. it may just be that people who hate Scott Morrison really, really want to 
see him go down, you know, want him to well, quit yeah, Parliament or something. But, and so they are really riled up about it. I don't know. I, I'm riled up about it simply because, uh, like, this is, <clears throat> even though I have enormous faith in Australia's political culture, okay, and that's important as a precursor to make that point, I also don't believe that he was delusional thinking he could usurp our democracy. But to, having said that, this is how it happens, right? Like, this sort of example around the world is one of the stepping stones to the erosion of democracy. And it is a serious thing, even if we assume it's never going to happen in a country like Australia because of our political culture or because of the checks and balances that our parliamentary system provides. The erosion, the slow erosion of democracy starts like this, even if that wasn't Scott Morrison's intent. And that's what riled me up about it. Democracy dies in the dark. And Scott Morrison kept everyone in the dark about the ministries that he held, and that's a bad thing. Right, but it strikes me that, uh, you know, the, there would be a simple simple fix to this, which is we go, oh, that's a weird quirk of Australian democracy that a Prime Minister can do that. We should probably fix that uh, little loophole and just make a rule that if uh, that either, you know, a ministry can only be held by one person or if it's going to be held by multiple people, that has to be published in the Parliamentary Gazette. Which something. I suspect is exactly what they'll end up doing. And then, end, like, end a story. That's a 15-minute process. That's not a month-long, like wringing our hands about the fate of Australian democracy. Yeah, that, look, that's fair, but I still think it's reasonable, given that someone rose to be our, what, 30th Prime Minister, uh, that that he gets appropriately hauled over the coals about this because he should know better. You know, the, the bigger thing that this raises for me, actually, is that, uh, you know, and I would say this as somebody who studies and teaches politics, but I, I think civics and the teaching of politics should be compulsory at school all the way through to year 12. I think that you have to do some version of civics until the end of year 10. I think it should be a compulsory unit in the high school certificate, and I think it should be compulsory to count towards your units. English, I think, is. Maths is getting there in some states. But I think it should be compulsory, and I think people should know and wait, understand are you saying, the system. Are you saying that we should teach 25 million people civics so that the one person who becomes prime minister <laughs> knows what the fuck they're well, doing? So, so that we all realise how the system works and how it is inappropriate when it doesn't but work. But I mean, you could smell you could smell this a mile off, Peter. I, mean, I you know, I'm not saying that it, this was obviously fishy, and yet because I well, like, why do you think he did it? This is what I this is I why I've that, left. That, that, that's the part I don't I, understand. Yes. What is he? What was he thinking? If 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 I had to choose, I would I would love to have Scott Morrison sat down in a cooperative sense with someone who is a political psychologist. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. I would love to. (laughs) Dr. Zepps in the house. This is, and and the now Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, actually said this in in a moment, I I thought, of real honesty in one of his media conferences. Because I think part of this has been that he's taken his opportunity to attack Scott Morrison. Part of it is that he is outraged. But in a moment of real honesty, in a comment that he gave, he just said, I can't get my, I'm paraphrasing, I can't understand the mind that decides to do this. I just don't understand it. And I'm in the same spot. Yeah. Like, the only thing I can think of is this sort of arrogance or conceit of power that he felt like, you know what? The more things that I have control of, even if I don't ultimately use them, the safer the country is because aren't I great? Yeah. You know, that's the only thing I can think of. Me too. I've been trying to think. And I think one reason why it has captivated everyone so much is because it's so inexplicable. 
and and is therefore quite open to the most nefarious interpretations. So people, so the the twenty percent of the Australian population who has always just loathed Scott Morrison uh, has grounds for thinking that this reveals his true colours as a would be dictator, uh, because there's no other more reasonable, plausible explanation for what was going through his head. I mean, I, I think the most generous when I when I thought that this all only happened in March and April of 2020, I thought. What's probably happened is he's had a mini nervous breakdown at the start of the pandemic and has felt completely overwhelmed. Mm. I mean, I don't know whether that's clinically accurate, but, you know, he feels he wanted to become prime minister because why not become prime minister? Because he's a good bloke and, you know, being prime minister would be fun. You get little flags on the front of your car and you get to fly <laughs> around on the prime ministerial aeroplane and stuff, uh, you know, but he ne- he's not a big vision guy. He's not a... He's not a John Howard or a, mm. a you know or a Bob Hawke or a Paul Keating who had fundamental ideas about the trajectory that they wanted to push the country on. He's just a good bloke, um, as far as he se- sees himself. And then all of a sudden, the planet gets plunged into this crisis of historic proportions, and he goes, "Holy shit, I am gonna fall!" And he's already had the bushfires, remember? So he's yep. had a catastrophic uh, summer in 2019 to 2020, uh, where he was roundly and justly pilloried for being out of touch and for allowing a massive natural disaster to completely spin out of his control. And we forget how they followed each other one by one. Like yeah. There was no gap between them. No. Australia was still on fire no. when the pandemic hit. Yes, that's right. Well, it was actually, believe it or not, it was the same weekend. So it was, it was there were two weekends in January of 2020. I wrote a, uh, um, uh, an essay for... A book called Black Summer, which was um, which was a compilation of journalists' recollections of that summer, because I was on the air on, bre- on doing the breakfast show on ABC Radio Sydney, and also doing the weekend breakfast tele- television show. So for like seven days a week, I was on the air during December and January, and uh, there was one weekend which was the first dump of rain, massive dump of rain, which was the weekend before. Uh, or the weekend of Australia Day. It was either right. the weekend of Australia Day or the weekend before Australia Day 2020, which is uh, the 26th of January. And within five days of, of that dump of rain, the first person stepped off a plane in Melbourne with COVID. Yeah, right. Well, And, and look, I, I, I tend to think, when I try to get inside his head to understand why he did this, I, I can see, as we've already talked about, why he did the health one and thought it was a good idea. And I can kind of see how a week later doing the finance one happened and I can see how with his personality he just didn't bother to tell Matthias Cormann. He wasn't close to Matthias mm. Cormann. Matthias Cormann didn't back him over Dutton in the leadership showdown when they were trying to replace Malcolm Turnbull. He backed Peter Dutton very closely. He walked into the room with him. They weren't close mm. and Matthias Cormann was sort of, if you like, planning his departure from the moment Scott Morrison became Prime Minister really and, and you know he's now gone and heading up the OECD instead. So I can sort of see why... You know, in an interpersonal sense, he didn't bother to tell him. I'm not justifying it, but I can see how it all happened yeah. in that early 2020 phase. The one that's then weird is when you fast forward over a year to the three that he did in 2021. It's that's almost, right. It's almost like he wanted to stop Keith Pitt's decision in resources, and he remembered that he had this capacity to oh. to take over portfolios and co-op yeah. them. So he's then decided to do it for a different motive to deny his ability to do that, which we do know was why he did that. He's admitted that. Mm. And then having done that, it's reminded him that he's got this power that he can secretly do. And then, as you say, when Omicron strikes and we're counting down to the May budget. Yeah, it was and, Delta, but yep. Oh, sorry, Delta. <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then Karen Andrews takes over Home Affairs and he thinks, well, 
you know, I've always been partial to home affairs. I held the portfolio <laughs> myself. Why yeah. don't I take that? And and then he's got Josh with him and maybe he watches Josh undercook the curry and he thinks, you know what? I'm not sure about Josh's competence. I might grab that as well in Treasury. Mm, mm. It, it, it's like an addiction at that so, point. So, yeah. So, there, are, there might be two different mindsets going on. I mean, in 2020, it might be what I was uh, sort of speculating about, which is a kind of a... Uh, a, a um, a freak out, basically, mm. like a, a holy shit moment. And and a sense, justifiably, that, you know, he saw how everyone ultimately blames the person at the top during the bushfires. Yep. Right. You know. And no he, said, he what, said that, didn't he? Yeah. Subsequently he said it, yeah, well. exactly. And he said, yeah, yeah he has, and he has said, uh, yeah, at the, the end of the day, the buck stops with the prime minister. And when all of a sudden the world throws some incredible challenge at you, then you arm up. And he saw part of his arming up as being like, oh my goodness, I just have, what the hell am I going to do? I'd have to accrete as many resources and tools. I have to have as many tools in my toolkit as I possibly can. And that includes being, you know, having these health powers and all that sort of stuff. Mm. As you say, then a year later, you can't use that same, oh, I'm just freaking out rationale because it's a year in, we haven't been smashed the way that we might have feared you know, things are kind of chugging along. Uh, and importantly, the resource one had nothing to do with COVID. That's right. So then it becomes a... Con- then it, does it become a control freakery? Then does it become like... Well, it becomes a mechanism that he can stop something happening without the same fight that he would otherwise have to have in Cabinet. And that thing that he was stopping happening, was that because uh, policy-wise the resource minister was right, but electorally the Prime Minister felt like it would be right. too much of a liability to allow this? Was it an offshore gas project, That's was right, it? yeah. And so, so the resource minister was partial to doing it purely on the policy grounds. On the merits. He took a view that there was merit in this project. And it's a conservative, it's a centre-right government, so generally they would be favourable to approving yep. you know, gas projects and stuff like that. Whereas, it's not characteristic of a conservative Prime Minister to block that unless he's very concerned about his electoral, his upcoming election in, was it in Queensland, the, the I, gas I, project I, or something? I thought or? it was off New South Wales, oh, okay. um, so, but, but, but some, I stand to be corrected. But I do, my understanding is it was off, it was certainly offshore of marginal seats. Oh, I see. I so, see. so he was concerned electorally that this going ahead could have an impact on environmental votes in some of those electorates, right? Uh, which is not normally first order of business for Scott Morrison, quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> He's a guy yeah. that had a piece of coal in Parliament, you know, at, at one point uh, and has been used against him ever since. But he was thinking, you're right, he was thinking about electoral politics versus yeah. the minister. And, you know, he, he, I, I think at that point he realised, hey, or someone in his office potentially realised, maybe the inquirer will get to the bottom of this, that there's an there's a mechanism here by which you can stop this without needing to sack Keith Pitt, mm. and and here's how you do it, and so yeah, he's right. gone down that path, and he's thought to himself at the end of the day when the government loses power because people are pissed off at the government and they're pissed off at me, it's not going to save you, Keith Pitt. Like ultimately, you're making you're making what you think is the right decision, but the buck stops with me as the prime minister. I'm leading this government, and when people go into the polls next election day, they're not going to be thinking about Keith Pitt. They don't even know who you are. They're mm. going to be thinking about Scott Morrison. So you I'm going to be an in charge kind of guy, and I'm going to take the charge that ex- fates have dealt me. Except all he wanted was the outcome, because none of us knew that he did that. So he wasn't getting. He wasn't no, getting... no, no, sure, but the government. But I mean, sure, the, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah he wants but... he wants the government to be the to have the most positive. You know, impression in those marginal seats as he can. But you know what fascinates me is I'm surprised on both sides of this. I'm surprised that Scott Morrison thought he could do this without it leaking. Maybe he thought it would leak, but he thought it would look like he was strong and who cares? Right. Because people would support his decision electorally. 
I'm also really surprised that having had it done to him, that Keith Pitt didn't find a way to leak it. Because mm. I would have now, you know, I can only assume that he didn't want to lose his ministry and therefore wanted to stay in the portfolio, in yeah. the cabinet. You know, he'd been promoted and all the rest of it. But that surprises me. I would have thought that Keith Pitt would want that out yeah. and would find a way to get it to a journalist. But that didn't leak. I mean, this only mm. came, this wasn't even in the book. The book, you know, in a grandiose way, referred to the health portfolio, but also the finance one. The, the authors st- hadn't gone to check uh, whether the finance minister knew or not. So they just wrote it up as he did this to both health and finance. Matthias Corman on the other side of the world. Actually, I think he was visiting family in, in Perth at the time. <laughs> but Matthias Corman reads this and, you know, he's like, what? You know, and, and, and he sort of, he gets contacted by journalists, yeah. myself included, by the way, right. saying, did you know about this? Mm. And he's replying to these journalists going, nope. Uh, wow. And then suddenly that kicks the story on. Sam Maiden, to her credit, from News.com, their political editor, she then um, she then finds out somehow uh, that this also happened in relation to Keith Pitt and resources. Now, maybe that was the point at which Keith Pitt decided that he would leak it, or at right. the very least he confirmed it, mm. uh, and Sam scooped that. And then, then it became that point that you were talking about a little earlier, where you know Ben Fordham then asked the question of Scott Morrison, any other portfolios? Not that I can recall. Mm. And then, of course, by this stage, because Anthony Albanese is now the Prime Minister, he has gone to his department and said, I want a full list mm. uh, of the portfolios. And then he has subsequently had a press conference, I think it was the following day or two, where he's announced, actually, it's five in total. You've got to add home affairs and uh, and treasury to it. And there was, a, there was an AAP story that suggested that he also took over social services, which ended up being incorrect. Right. Uh, and Anne Rustin, who was in that portfolio at the time, she, because my office at Channel 10, we contacted her about that. And she said that I was not aware that he took over my portfolio but I was aware that it was a live option based on you know some of the commentary during the pandemic. As right. it turns out, he didn't right. take that portfolio, and that report from AAP was actually incorrect. Uh, but you know, this was during a time where we were wondering: did he co-opt every single ministry? Uh, and we were waiting to find out. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. That I mean, it's interesting to think about whether or not that would have been a bigger scandal. Uh, I assume <laughs> it would have been the the just quick quickly on like how decisions get made in cabinet. The whole resources thing mm. has baffled me a little bit because I've just assumed that ostensibly a minister has the discretion to make whatever call they want to make, but that any prime minister worth his salt has enough backing in cabinet and enough backing from his party colleagues that if he really lent on a minister and said, mate, you know, this is a cabinet decision and it's an important electoral decision for us, just swallow your pride on this one. And let's go with the way that I want to do it. That that ultimately would happen. That it would be rare that a minister would would tell a prime minister and tell cabinet, no, I'm going to go my own way on this and expect to have a, at least a long political career after that. I think that's largely true. But there are two there are two official types of ministerial decisions. There's what's called delegated ministerial decisions, where a minister can make a decision without it having to have been approved by cabinet formally. The Environment Minister has a lot of these decision powers. We've seen um, Tanya Plibersek already start to use them from time to time. The Resources Minister does as well. There are some in financial-related matters where both the Treasurer and the Finance Minister have them also, and there are some in Home Affairs, uncoincidentally, with portfolios that Scott Morrison has assumed uh, where it where that power exists. But generally speaking, these delegated decisions are quite micro in nature. They're small, they're particular, 
uh, to a, a topic. Now, yes, in theory, you would think a prime minister who gets to choose his or her ministry and delegate the portfolios could contact one of those ministers, tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, mate, it's important to me that we do extra. I mean, they're regularly meeting for cabinet anyway. Aren't exactly. They? I mean, how frequent is a cabinet meet? It's frequently enough that you could say, "Oh, by the way, you know, this thing that's coming up with that offshore gas thing, we, we should have a to- we should have a chat about that because really, there's you know, there's a lot of electoral, yeah. you know, uh, but usually that doesn't usually that doesn't happen because usually that delegated authority where a minister doesn't need a cabinet sign off for a decision. Is, is is small by nature and right. particular that you just trust your minister to do it, sure. right? Generally speaking. <laughs> generally speaking. Trust and Scott Morrison are two words that... Uh, but most... Don't, don't confuse that power, though, with what is most ministerial decision-making, which is that a minister wants to make a, a change in their portfolio, which is a bigger policy item. They don't have the power to do that on their own. Right. They need to take it to Cabinet. Cabinet needs to approve it. And even if it doesn't require legislation, cabinet approves it, and then they amend uh, as you know they can make amendments that that aren't required to be legislative amendments. I see. I see. Uh, or it requires legislation, in which case cabinet agrees to it. Then once cabinet agrees, they take it to their own party room, and they hope that their party room agrees. Then they take it to parliament. They always get it through the lower house because they have the majority, but then they have to negotiate it through the Senate because usually yeah, right. the government of the day doesn't have the majority there. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. And the and the gas project was one of the the small bore one of those things that ordinarily decisions. you would not have. So it's a bit like the prime minister like overruling you on what wallpaper you have or what couch you have in your office. Yeah, or, or it's like gets, this is not so, this is not your job. Like or, you're not supposed to be involved in these kinds of decisions. Or, or he gets in C one his car to the airport and he starts telling the driver what he thinks is the faster route. Yeah, right. Because it's peak hour traffic. Yeah. It's a bit. It's a bit like the driver's that. like, let me do my job, boss. Uh, <laughs> so then let's talk about the response to this and you know the criticism of Anthony. Al- so Anthony Albanese, the current prime minister, who's from the opposing party to the person we're talking about, he's from the centre left party. The centre right party lost, uh, and. He has announced a royal commission. Not, it, or, not, not a royal it? commission. It's an inquiry big... with a former high court judge, which okay. is like the US Supreme Court, uh, and she's overseen it. She's not seen as a particularly political high court appointment, so that you know most aren't, but she's certainly not. And she's a retired high court judge, you know, very esteemed, therefore. And it's an inquiry rather than a royal commission. And what that means is that it doesn't quite have the unfettered powers of a royal commission and it can be a little bit cheaper. It doesn't have the power to compel witnesses. And this is a deliberate decision by Anthony Albanese. There was speculation that it would have the power to compel witnesses. My understanding was that the cabinet signed off on the prime minister having the right to include the power to compel witnesses in the way that he designed the inquiry, but he ultimately didn't do Hmm. that. But what he did do is he deliberately picked someone of such eminence to head the inquiry who was apolitical, if you like, that it would be very hard for Scott Morrison to refuse to cooperate. Right. And, and Scott Morrison has already indicated, by the way, that he will cooperate. But and also there's, always, there's already been a preliminary uh, you know, submission by, was it the Solicitor General? Yeah, the, the Solicitor General? General did an investigation just to And who find... basically said there was no crime committed. So there would be no real reason why Scott Morrison wouldn't... Exactly. I mean, there's no reason for him to plead the fifth because no, you know, whatever... He's not going to go to jail. He's not going to go to jail. No, there's, nothing, there's nothing illegal happened. No, he didn't do anything illegal according to the Solicitor General, but it wasn't befitting of the concept of responsible government as a political uh, institutional concept in Australia. So this inquiry that the former High Court judge is presiding over, 
uh, it will now try to get to the bottom of who knew what and when and but, why. So and why all the rest does all of it. this matter? And what and is this wise politics for the Labor Party? So you know, I was texting with my friend Waleed Ali, who is another political commentator here, who who got copped a lot of flack last week for writing a piece in the Age, uh, which is Melbourne's uh, broadsheet newspaper. Well, not broadsheet anymore, but one of Melbourne's newspapers, uh, arguing that you know this is where. <laughs> Where there's a political liability, basically, for the left to keep going after Scott Morrison and seem like it's litigating the the issues of the past, and this will not not be unfamiliar to people in the United States as well, who are sort of you know wringing their hands about how much time do you spend about what Donald Trump did, and how much time do you spend trying to create a, a strategy for the future and, and create a vision that people can get behind. Uh, for an alternative way that the country can move forward. And, you know, that really all we, all we needed to do was, you know, close the loophole about how this happens in the future and then move on with it. What's the inquiry going to reveal? I'm not sure that there's a need for an inquiry, uh, even though I have all sorts of strong opinions about what violation this represented, and I believe that it should absolutely tarnish Scott Morrison's legacy. I, I feel that very strongly because... Well, it will, and it has. And, yeah, and any Prime Minister who does this and gets outed for having done it and done it secretly, I think deserves to be trashed into infinitum. I was saying the other day, I, I suspect that the biggest loser from all this is Josh Frydenberg. Because if there was ever a hope that Frydenberg, the treasurer who lost his seat, may have been able to make a comeback in politics in 10 years, 15 years after making a lot of money in the private sector, coming back, you know, when the when the party is uh, is on its knees in the future and say, look, you know, I presided over this, you know, this, uh, you know, I was the energy minister, I was the treasurer. There was still a glimmer of that being mm. possible. And I think after this, him being so closely associated with a prime minister who was frankly corrupt is and that, and tricky that, for and, him. And that is why... For him, uh, I, yeah, he. I understand that he had a rather robust conversation with Scott Morrison when Scott Morrison rang him to apologise for all of this in the aftermath. Right. My understanding of that conversation is that it was not nearly as collegial as Scott Morrison tried to suggest it was in the one media conference that he's done mm. uh, post all of this being outed. But yeah, look, I, I don't think Waleed Ali's wrong about that because I, I, I can see the political problems for Labor in having an inquiry if they over-egg the pudding, as it were, uh, they'll be seen to be playing politics with this. Now, don't get me wrong. I I would rather have an inquiry purely because I want to get to the bottom of who knew what and when and why, right? And that's the only way to do that. But politically for Labor, did they need to do it? Politically? No way. Uh, institutionally, is it good to have the information that we will get from an inquiry? Yes, but they're two different questions, What's aren't they? the information that we would get that we don't have? Well, we'll find out who in the office knew. Uh, we'll find out reasons why it was done beyond just a Facebook post, which is all we've really had from Scott Morrison about him trying to justify why he's done it. We'll have the kind of forensic questioning of why from somebody as eminent as a former high court right. judge, presumably with counsel assisting, to be able to get to the bottom of these answers. Because, for example... Uh, and, and I don't know this because we haven't had the inquiry yet, but I'm led to believe that there were certain people inside Scott Morrison's office who knew about this, staffers I'm talking about, and I'm led to believe that at least one of those staffers is now working for a very senior shadow minister of the same party now that they're in opposition. Now, that that is of relevance to me. I I, yeah. Politicians like to say staffers shouldn't be sort of brought into these things, but they should. 
The reason they should is because once upon a time, if a staffer did something wrong, a staffer to a minister, the minister resigned because that was how responsible government's supposed to work, right? They're an extension of the minister. But now, often staffers lose their jobs to protect their bosses. Mm. That's when staffers do become relevant because they become part of the process. So I think that's relevant to get to well, the bottom also, of who I mean, you- if your staffers are confidants whose opinion you trust and whose counsel you value, then it matters if they, if they were giving you stinking piles of shit as, as 100%, advice. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, and then they're going, off elsewhere in the party. And in Australia, more political staffers go on to become politicians than in most Westminster systems around the world. So it's not uncommon that a lot of these staffers, if there were a number who knew, could see themselves as politicians one day. So I think we deserve to know the answers to all of that. Have we had a massive inflation in staffing of parliamentarians? Well, the way it works is new governments tend to reduce it as some sort of promise from the campaign, and then it steadily increases during their life of government until another new government reduces it. But they never reduce it as much as it was at the reduction point of the previous government. So the answer to your question is yes, it just keeps going up and up. And are these all on the public payroll or are they, they personal are. staffers No, as no, well? they're on the public payroll, taxpayer funded, even though they're entirely partisan. So they're not part of the public service. But that's mm. the other part of it, Josh, the, the public service. What we need to know who in the public service knew. I also think we need to get a bit well, wait, more of- Why would anyone in the public service have known? Well, just procedurally, they might have been across it uh, as part of it. Or they might have been giving some professional advice each time. Or maybe no one knew. But yeah. I- I'd like to know the answer to that. Yeah. I'd also like to know a lot more about the Governor-General because we've got no intel at this point in time whether he- said anything or mm. you know, was he like a tr- a trained baboon and all he did was just sign off on these things each time <laughs> and not stop and pause for thought or did he actually privately mm. tell the prime minister i reckon you should publish this mm. i reckon you need to make this known to the minister that you're co-opting their portfolio maybe he said all of that but we just don't know mm. i think that the public deserves to get an answer to those yeah, sort of questions. That's so true and at what point do you ruminate about your role as the governor general given that it's such a a figurehead, given that it's such a, a toothless position, when there are scenarios that start bringing you up to the precipice of the edge of what it, of what is normal or what is constitutional, potentially, you know, do you do you talk to other former governors general? Do you talk it- to your counterparts in other countries? Do you ever put in a call to Buckingham Palace? And uh, you know, is there is there some point at which you go, this yeah, but- is kind of not usual. That's another reason for the inquiry insofar as the advice that it might provide, which is that you need more support around a Governor General that's professional advice rather than just ceremonial. But for example, all the Governor General needed... Look, maybe the Governor General privately said to the Prime Minister, I reckon you should publish this. And if the Prime Minister didn't, the Governor General then decided, well, it's not my role to do that. I have given that answer privately, so I have to leave it be from here. Maybe that's what happened. But if he didn't even do that, that concerns me because all, all the Governor General would have to do, which would not be breaking some sort of role or even ceremonial role. Their ceremonial role is essentially just to follow the advice of the Prime Minister and, and cut ribbons, right? But they forever publish their their diary of what they did the day before or what they're about to do the next day. It'd be very easy for a Governor General to innocently, if they actually held concerns about the secrecy of this, a Governor General very innocently would be allowed to just publish their diary from the day before. I cut this Mm. ribbon at this event. I lit this torch at that event. Oh, by the way, I signed the Prime Minister in as the co-treasurer. I mean, if, if they just if they release that, I can tell you what, it's going to get some media. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But that would be throwing the, the Prime Minister under the bus as well. Well, it, it, it'd, be, it'd be the Prime Minister 
been thrown under the bus by his own actions yeah. with the Governor-General doing it cleverly, I, I would argue. It'd be interesting to see whether Scott Morrison would have seen it that way. How are Governors-General <laughs> appointed? Who gets to decide? Uh, well, the Prime Minister. <laughs> Solo. Essentially, yeah. I mean, yeah. look, there, there are party functions and, and, and so forth. There's no requirement of agreement from the opposition. No, or from no, no. The, Parliament. The, the convention is that, that as a courtesy, the opposition would be informed. Yeah. Uh, but they're not required to. And you to mentioned agree. the the high the, the former High Court Justice, which is Australia's highest court, uh, like the Supreme Court in the United States, who'll be presiding over the inquiry. And you said this is a non-partisan figure. Why is Australia's High Court so much less partisan than America's Supreme Court? How are our justices appointed? Well, I, our justices are also political appointments insofar as the the Attorney General makes the recommendation to Cabinet and then makes the appointment subsequent to that. So whichever party happens to be in power at the time gets to appoint the High Court judge. They do. There's no requirement for, again, the opposition to approve it. There's no sort of super majority. You need two-thirds of the Senate or anything like that. And there's not even a convention, actually, when it comes to High Court appointments that the opposition does get even told, frankly. So why Um, has no party gone down the path of just cherry-picking political appointees. It, it's a it's a political cultural issue. It's a distinction between Australia and the US. I mean, the process actually We've just had nice guys the whole time. Well, look, there's, the, there's been the in odd, there's the been Yeah, look, they, they they there are partisan appointments. Justice Callanan was a right-wing partisan appointment and Justice Kirby was a left-wing partisan appointment. But they were still Who appointed them. Uh, now I'm testing your trivia knowledge. Yeah, yeah, aren't well, I? I Callanan I believe was a Howard appointment. And Kirby, I believe, was a Keating appointment, but I, I stand to be corrected on that. I'm pretty sure that's right. Th- they were both unashamedly sort of, if you like, left or right in their positioning, but not partisan would be the way I'd put it. See, this is the distinction with our political culture to the US. Th- they were still eminent members of the bar as well as the judiciary prior to their appointments. I think Callanan went straight from the bar to the bench, and I think Kirby was already a state uh, Supreme Court justice who then became, it might have been appeals court, but then he got promoted to the high court. Their, their decisions and their judgments reflected their ideology of left and right, but they weren't partisan in the way that they acted. And by and large, the Australian appointments, look, you know, they, they still vet them. They still try to pick people that they think are more conservative justices or more activist judicial actors. And then they appoint people that reflect that because the Labor Party is the more progressive party and the Liberal Party and the Nationals are the more conservative party. So they they reflect that ideology, but they're not as partisan. And the other factor, which is a difference to the US, which is probably as important, for the most part, we don't have the same controversial issues getting decided by courts, uh, like Roe versus Wade. It gets decided by parliaments rather than by courts, whereas in the United States, that, if you like, has its own impact on the political culture, which then impacts on who gets appointed to the judiciary. Mm. And is that because they've got such a, they've got a Bill of Rights and they've got such a, a well-articulated constitution that they're constantly falling back on that in the courts, or is it also partly because legislatures, successive legislatures in the United States have been so crap at doing their job of actually passing laws that it's sort of left up to the courts to be the only rule makers in the yeah, land? Yeah, a little, a little bit of both, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that their constitutional arrangements and having a Bill of rights lends itself to judicial activism of one form or another, uh, and we don't have that, so therefore it limits 
that. Uh, but and so- also then once the court, I suppose it's a self-reinforcing cycle, isn't it? Because once the court has, has discovered some very esoteric right like Roe v. Wade, which even if you're in favour of, uh, of a woman's right to choose, as I am, you can criticise as being a completely bonkers decision originally to, mm. to, to discover in the Constitution that there is a right to privacy that is not enunciated and then conclude that a woman has the right to privately kill a child in the eyes of the cr- Christian right uh, you know, without intervention, like the whole thing is to- kind of can be kind of topsy turvy, and then once that's decided, then legislatures no longer have to deal with it for the next half century. Whereas in the whole rest of the world, there was no other Western democracy mm-hmm. that found a constitutional right to abortion. We just muddle it out together and find and write laws. Yeah, and and a lot of these dif- a lot of the difference as well comes down to that you know the, the American political culture is more activist even if you're on the conservative right, uh, and there are stronger powers between the Commonwealth, well between the federal government I should say, and between states. We've got federation as well, but it's not the same and it's not as powerful as American federalism. And so as a result, you know the the natural sort of protest elements and activism and and you know if you engage, you can achieve outcomes. Culture of the U.S. political f- bun fights that they have lends itself towards, you know, the, the sort of culture that leads to the kind of Supreme Court uh, decision-making and the interplay of politics and that. And, of course, we also have a scenario in the US where in some jurisdictions, judges are elected rather than appointed. And then that also plays into that culture as well. It brings populism into it. Whereas it tends to, we've got more of the British in us yeah. in Australia when yeah. it comes to the, the role of, of, of courts versus the role of parliament. Yeah. I mean, electing judges and like electing sheriffs and things like that, <laughs> absolutely bonkers when you're, if you're outside the United States. I also just want to pick your brain about the, about our attitude towards having a stake in our governments. And in, since we're talking about the sort of big future of democracy and the, mm. and the, the, the threats to democracy, I suppose. I've been in a Twitter spot, spat um, this week, which I'll have more to say about in another episode of the of the podcast, um, in which I don't know if you've been following in the States this question about whether or not Facebook was tapped on the shoulder by the F. So Mark Zuckerberg went on Joe Rogan's show uh, and uh, and said that the FBI had come to them before the last federal election and said, just be on guard about Russian uh, disinformation and misinformation. Then the Hunter Biden laptop story uh, came, mm. came by and it had all the hallmarks of Russian misinformation. It was like, wait, the... You know, the presidential candidate's son lost a laptop. It suddenly showed up and now it's in the hands of Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani has all of this stuff. So Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook turned down the volume on sharing of that information. Uh, Twitter literally suspended the New York Post for having published the story. This then became a huge right-wing talking point about, mm. um, you know, the, about social media suppressing uh, speech that could be deleterious to the chances of Trump's re-election. Um, Subsequently, people have been tweeting madly over the past week saying that it's clear now that the government would do anything to prevent Donald Trump from being elected. And I said, well, what does that mean? Like, what's the government in this? Like, Donald Trump was the president Mm. at the time. Was Donald Trump, as the head of state and the head of government, conspiring to thwart his own re-election? And what's become clear in my various twos and fro's with right-wingers and Trumpers in the States online is that they don't think of the government as comprising the head of state or the head of government. They think of it as the apparatus of government? They think of it as the apparatus. They think of it as a shadowy cabal. Mm. You know, if they're more on the far right, then they think of it as Jews. 
and yeah, right. money people who are pulling strings uh, with lobbyists, Wall Street. Uh, and so I suppose this is a question about, if this is a question at all, rather than a rant, about the public service. Like they think that there's a, and there is indeed, a bureaucratic state that keeps on churning that is basically the Pentagon, you know, Jewish money, world domination people who are all intertwined with the public service and the bureau- bureaucratic state and that some, even someone who tries to come in and smash it up like Donald Trump gets thwarted and thrown out of office by the by what they call the government, but they're not using the word the government in any way that I use the term. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the only part of that, uh, we, when you take the sort of crazy out of it, uh, that, that, that rings true, but I think is a good thing that it rings true, is that the apparatus of state uh, protects the state. And yes, you can change it, and governments do all the time, depending on their political persuasion, depending on the sort of crash or crash through style of leadership that they have and all the rest of it, uh, policy scripts that make adjustments. But the state writ large is, it's a little bit like, you know, the train driver can make some, this isn't quite a perfect analogy, let me start by saying this, But but the train driver can change the speed, they can occasionally change track from here and there, but they can't drive it the way you would just drive a car in a field. And that's because the state, and I think this is a good thing, is built on, depending on the country, years, decades, hundreds of years of institutional settings which protect the citizens and the state and the nation state as well. And America's got those features. Australia's got those features. Britain have more of those features than either of those two nations. And and that, I think that's a good thing. And I guess the problem is if you're all about smashing the state because you want radical change, this is the same frustration that people of the radical right and the radical left feel when they butt up against the institutions. The institutions are innately conservative, okay, mm. and, and and deliberately so because you, you support change to an extent and those institutional settings are like the lanes that prevent people from moving too far out them. Now, if someone like Donald Trump wanted to get in and smash the state up, there are protections there which are regarded as all-time protections to some extent. And we have, you know, it's, it, this is a different discussion, but I used to have this discussion with my first-year politics students. Does one generation have the right to vote away the rights of the next generation? So, for example, in a democracy, do you have a right to vote in a communist or a fascist regime that takes an ethos or takes a policy to that election that they're going to abolish elections? Now, I would argue no because you are abolishing rights of future generations. It's a variation on environmentalist mm. arguments when it comes to what you can and can't do with vandalism for the future. But, you know, this is one of the interesting debates. Now, Australia did not ban the Communist Party. The United States did for these sort of institutional reasons. Now, Trump supporters aren't communists, but they have the same uh, institutional smash-up attitudes. I don't think that that's a bad thing that the state pushes back on that. I think those institutional settings allow government to run no matter what. And and part of this is also professionalism. You know, the bureaucracy of state allows the state to function even if we don't have politicians, but politicians can then shape it in ways that are good and bad. And that's why back in the day, Thomas Jefferson, he was the person who said, if I've got it, I mean, I'm paraphrasing now, but he said, basically, if I've only got a choice, a binary choice between having politicians versus having journalists and the fourth estate... I choose the journalists and the fourth estate. That's because he recognised that the apparatus of government can function without the politicians, but whether it's the state 
whether it's the politicians, whether it's big business, you want the fourth estate to hold them all to account mm. for the way that they function. I'll just I applaud all of that, all of those sentiments. And I would just add also that one thing that we forget about is the institutional expertise in the public services mm. field of, uh, of of work. So, you know, one thing that I think has is is a flaw in the American system is the extent to which you have a complete turnover of expertise with each administration. Uh, and Americans are, are often not aware that, you know, you look at something like the pandemic or, uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree with how various countries dealt with the pandemic, what you want in a situation like that is a bunch of brainy people who've devoted their entire lives to thinking about what happens when pandemics take place and who've devoted their lives to looking closely at the data of public health and various, you know, outbreaks and pathologies around the world in place who have jobs already, who are on the government payroll, and then they can, you know, launch into action. And the only way you have that is by having this, what Trumpers would call a deep state, essentially, yeah. right, <laughs> which is a public service that endures between... Uh, governments, and it doesn't matter who you vote in or who you vote out, there's the wonk with the, with his glasses on in the lab with his little white coat advising whoever the minister is. And the minister can change because we vote governments in and out, but the public service, the bureaucracy, remains in place. And in the States, that's not that doesn't happen yeah, nearly yeah, the same degree. Much more partisan carve in and out, depending on who's in power. And the only check and balance in the US tends to be that who is or isn't in power will vary between tiers of government. So you sort of end up having partisan checks uh, only because uh, the other side have got the power at the state level rather than at the national level or whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, but but it's, it's not as good a system. You'd rather have those, those independent or as far as possible independent public uh, servants and public and, and experts in particular categories. The, the Yes Minister and the Yes Prime Minister parody uh, from the BBC series from many, many decades ago, when you when you carve out the sort of the sexism and the ingrained constitution, uh, the ingrained conservatism and, and self-interest of Sir Humphrey and, and co, uh, Bernard and all the rest of them, ultimately the bigger joke now is that they don't have as much power even in Western democracies as they once did in terms of that independence because it's it's a it's a lesser of evils mm. to have that kind of independence, I think. We have a lot more of it, as you point out, uh, in, in a country like Australia than the United States does, but we still don't have as much of it as we used to have, and I think that's to our own detriment. If you could make one tweak to Australian democracy, what would it be? Oh, wow, one tweak. Um yeah, you, you, uh, yeah, the 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 only thing I would probably think of is to extend, and this is so minor that it sort of is a suggestion that I wouldn't make too many changes. The the one tweak I would make would be to extend three year terms federally to four years, probably just so that there's a little bit more room to move there without it being so popularised from one election to the next. We mm. end up in a permanent campaign. While I was saying that, I was thinking, would my one tweak, if 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 I get to have that godlike power of Scott Morrison, would it would it be just to change us to a republic? Uh, I just quite like the idea of breaking from the monarchy, but that's more a symbolism thing. Yeah. Um, institutional changes. I like compulsory voting. I like preferential voting. I like that we have proportional representation in the upper house as a check on the lower house. I don't have a problem with equal representation state to state, even though there are some negatives in that. Uh, the, so the biggest change would actually be institutionally just going from three to four years. Mm. Culturally, it's a harder question though, because I would make a massive cultural shift that opened up the system of who goes into politics beyond what has become very much a cartelization between the two major parties, and that's why we've had the rise of the Teal Independence. But that's a 
that doesn't have a one change right. mantra to it. Well, you're, you're allowed a- to interpret the change however you want to. I mean, if you want to wave your magic wand and have everybody, you know, running for... Yeah, I mean, the... Uh, the I, I suppose, are you pointing to maybe a less professionalisation of, of the political class? Like, I mean, that people should be able to be small business people for 25 years it's and pro- then just run for parliament. And yeah. then they can, that's that's like actual representatives of the community rather than career yeah. politicians. And, and the problem is the how-to. I mean, I guess it requires some sort of pre-selection change, but it ultimately requires a cultural mindset shift change by the major yeah. parties. Because I, I don't like the idea that the guy that spent 10 years between the ages of 23 and 33 working their way up as a political staffer, and that's all they've ever done, they then, lo and behold, easily win a pre-selection because they've spent that whole time as an insider also stacking branches. Yeah. And someone else who and might be a woman rather than a 33-year-old bloke, and she might have actually worked in business or actually worked in the community or whatever it might be, she, she doesn't even bother to run for politics because she knows that she can't get a foot in the door. Yeah. And, and that's not improved by the quota system of the Labor Party. Like, I've always been in favour of quotas. I've written a lot about it. One of the few people on the sort of centre-right who does that. But uh, that that fixes Labor not having enough women in Parliament, but it doesn't change the type of person who goes in, including the type of woman, because... You know, Labor's better on gender, no question, but both sides of politics are as bad as it at, at it being insiders in their yeah. club that go in. Yeah, right. Mm. Uh, anything you want to plug, Peter? My new book. What's it called? Victory. Victory. Uh, it'll be out, uh, I'm about to say next month, it'll be out at the very beginning of October. Uh, and it's, we, we, we got, it's with Wayne Arrington, who I always write with, and it's about Anthony Albanese's win at the election. And he gave us hours of interview time, the National Secretary who ran the Labor campaign gave us lots of interview time. We spoke to people on both sides, uh, the now Treasurer, you know, you name it, all the rest of them, Penny Wong. And it's a real insider's account. There was a book called The Victory by Pamela Williams. Don't get that one. Well, no, that was back in 1996. Oh, so don't okay. bother you can that. get that one now. Yeah, yeah. So we, we figure that there's enough time has passed, a uh, quarter of a century. We can steal the title, <laughs> but leave the the out. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. <laughs> Peter, great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.